which is what we are going through at the moment. We're only in our second week. So if you have uh, just started coming to this church uh, or you're you're checking us out, you can listen to tonight and then go back and uh, listen to our, on our YouTube channel, just listen to the last sermon, which is Jude chapter one, verse one and two. But we're doing this uh, uh, epistle over about another four or five weeks. And then we are going to be in the seven letters of the book of Revelation. In the book of Jude, I'm just getting there. Here we are. <clears throat> the book of Jude is written by Jesus' brother, and he is tonight. We are getting into those sections where he he compels and he reapply. He, he he's uh, calling and urging people to contend for the faith. We read those blessed verses last week where he says, "Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called." Beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We actually didn't even get to verse 2 last week. You took a little bit of, a little bit of time getting there. But I'll be quick tonight. That, that is him basically saying, and to those who are in Christ, may the love of God, may the mercy from God, and may peace with God that you have through being reconciled in relationship with Jesus Christ, the peace of God be multiplied to you plentifully. That's his prayer. And he starts going into verse 3 with the very familiar sense that we might have as Christians in today's age. Look at what he says. He says, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he's, he started by, by, by wanting, he had sat down with pen and paper or parchment and quill, whatever he would have had, and he started with the, with, the, with the initial motivation to just celebrate in words through a letter with the church that he loved so that he could, he could just celebrate and, and reflect and, and delightfully remember the common salvation that we have, the, the gospel that we share in, the, the blessings of the gospel, the beauties of the gospel, the promises of the gospel. He wanted to do that because fellowship is really uh, something that everybody loves. Everybody loves an encouraging, reflective letter, and yet he seems to be on, on the idea that, that you, you seem to all be all about fellowship. You would have loved an encouraging, reflective letter, but that's not what you needed. I wanted to write to you very eagerly about our common salvation. I wanted to write that, but I was pressed with a sense of absolute urgency to do something more effective than just that. I would have loved to have just written about that. Now, now, there's no rebuke and there's no, there's no sense that they're failing the, the basics. There's no sense as, as if he was going, I wanted to write to you about our common gospel. Turns out, though, you're probably not even in the gospel. We probably don't even have a common salvation. It, it's not that angle. It, it's just more. It's this reality that we all get too familiar with. Everybody loves fellowship. It's as if Jude is thinking about this church and goes, you know, if, if I came to town and I said that I was going to put on a fellowship dinner, you'd all be there. If I said that we were going to get together and have a, have a great night where we just sing, sing hymns together and hold hands, you'd find a way to be there. If I said we were going to put on a family picnic, everybody would clear their schedules to get there. But if I told you we were going to hold a prayer meeting, I'd see 10 people. I feel like if I was going to go evangelizing in the city, you'd find it rather unnecessary or maybe you're not gifted in that way. I feel like if we were going to, to have, a, have a debate where we hold contenders against the faith, accountable for their doctrine, and we, and we defend the Christian faith, you'd feel that's probably unloving and, and, again, maybe for somebody else. 
This is a trap that we fall into far too often. It was precisely the error of the early church. That the, that the thousands were getting saved under, under the, the hard-hitting call to repentance under the apostolic preaching. Thousands were getting saved, and then thousands more, and thousands more, and families were coming into the church, and the city was getting changed. These millions of people that had been in city for Pentecost, many of them didn't go home because they just got converted, and instantly in that city was a mega church. And then they did the Christian thing. They got comfortable. They started hanging out at each other's houses. They started having dinners and meals and enjoying their common salvation, but they did not go as Jesus commanded them to go. And so he had to do what they wouldn't do themselves. He had to send them out, but a command was not enough for them. He had told them, go. When you get the Spirit, get out of this city. Go to the ends of the world. I have sheep that are everywhere, but they wouldn't go. And where a command was not enough, Jesus sent persecution by the name of Paul to start cracking down on those Christian churches so that then Acts chapter 8 tells us because of the persecution, not the Great Commission, but because of the persecution they spread around the whole empire. Well, here we find Jude with the same kind of mentality as his brother Jesus, the same kind of mentality that the Holy Spirit inspired through the events of Acts. He's now inspiring through the words of Jude. So he gave himself one verse. He gave himself verse 1 to enjoy and reflect on the common gospel salvation that we all have. That was last week. Verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now it's action time. And he says, as we'll finish our reading tonight, for, in verse 4, for the reason I have written to you to contend for the faith, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless this reading in our midst this evening. Here we have the reality that <coughs> already coming through Jude, in, the, in just the third verse, as he said, I wanted to reflect, but instead I need to appeal. I wanted to encourage, but in fact, I need to exhort you. I need to compel you. I need to urge you to get out of your comfort zone in order to contend for the, for the faith once delivered to the saints. The life of a Christian and Christians corporately is one of warfare. We get in a large issue, as we were touching on, when fellowship becomes the goal of the church. It is not the goal of the church. Fellowship is not the mission. Fellowship is an essential part of the mission. But keeping the mission being great commission engagement or what we might call kingdom building through gospel proclamation, when that's the mission, fellowship finds its right place. It's no longer a distraction where we're, where we're having fun in each other's lounge rooms instead of preaching the gospel on the streets. It's no longer that. It's, it's where we console one another where we pray for one another for empowerment, where we encourage one another in the fight, where we, where we feed one another with the very fuel and, and doctrine and knowledge that we need so that we can fight, where we come together, we sharpen our blades, we feast, and then we go. That's what fellowship ought to be. 
not as a cul-de-sac where, where we, we go in for our own ends, uh, for our own means. It's an end to itself, this fellowship. And then we go back out and maybe do some mission. But, but we feel like at, at my fellowship group, at the, the Christian hang, you know, this was a taste of heaven. And isn't it great that we've arrived there? It's never in any sense, the Christian New Testament understanding of the mission for the church. The mission of the church is always to be expanding, extending the borders, taking ground for the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. And Jude knows that this warfare mentality is so easily lost and therefore he writes to compel them. The life of a Christian and Christians corporately is warfare. Therefore, the measure of a church, let's, let's think this in terms of a church about to plant another church. Let's think of this in terms of a church that is experiencing blessings from the Lord God. And we want to look around and see new people and, and, and whatnot. Let's ask ourselves this. Do we measure up to this metric? The sign of health in a church is not just growth, is not just money, is not just, definitely not just fellowship, great meals, awesome laughs, people that I love. It's not just that. The mark of health in a local church is its engagement in the Great Commission. To what degree is this church making a difference in the world for the kingdom of Christ? Are souls being saved? Are immature Christians becoming mature Christians? Are teenage boys of all ages, you can have a 40 or 50 year old teenage boy, are they becoming Christian men, raising families, holding fast to doctrine, working hard for other people? Are we finding young women matured into Christ Jesus so that they can nurture life spiritually, physically? Are we seeing churches planted so that areas of the world that are not hearing the compelling, booming, thundering gospel of Jesus, are they being interrupted by your proclamation? That's the question. To what degree are we engaging in the Great Commission? To what degree are we taking ground for the kingdom? That is a mark of health of a church, not the degree to which we enjoy one another's fellowship. Because we're not just pilgrims. We're not just wandering around hoping to enjoy parts of the creation and, and enjoy parts of God's blessings as if, as if Aslan has given us a, a pack of goodies to make us, to, to, to let, let us go to the way. As, as if in John Bunyan's story, one thing I'm just not a big fan of is that it's all just about wandering around until he reaches the celestial city. It is more. We're not just pilgrims. We're not just wanderers. We are soldiers. We are a militia of civilians called to take up arms for the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. And so there, there is a commonality. There is a delightful reflection, and that is good, but contending is necessary. Reflecting is good. Contending is necessary. So we don't find a harsh rebuke or chastisement in Jude. We find exhortation and, and, and an admonishment. Verse 3 tells us to contend, then he tells us about the faith once for all delivered. And lastly, we will see those who are the danger. The very reason we must contend is because of the present danger. So look at verse 3. He says, halfway through, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend. This language of contend is, is uh, 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 brought up first in th verse 3. Now, I want you to sort of picture the, the, whole, the whole book in sort of four parts. You've got verse 3 saying you must contend. Verse 4 will tell us why to contend. 
The middle section of, of the whole epistle will be an expansion on why to contend about all these false teachers and, and demonic, ungodly type people. And then it'll come back at the very end in sort of a, the late 20s and tell us again how to contend. So we'll see that we contend now and how to contend at the end. In the middle, a little bit this week, and then over the next few weeks, we'll even touch on Sodom and Gomorrah for June Pride Month, just as a providential blessing of God. We'll get there. He'll say, to contend, why to contend, an expansion on why to contend, then come back to how to contend at the end. So you need to be here for the last sermon to get the application of verse 3. But I hope we see you in between then as well. So this language of contending is sort of, in the Greek, the, 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 the expended effort in a noble cause. Somebody who is at, the, at their wit's end, at the, the end of their rope, who is straining themselves. The, the word was used for somebody who was, who was reaching over the finish line at the end of a marathon. Somebody who had expended themselves in a noble cause. That's the idea. Over and over again, Paul will use this language about his mission work about his, his hard labor for the gospel, about his hard work for the building of the church and the keeping of its purity. And we are called, every one of us, to do likewise, contending for the faith. I know there's some, there's some tradies in the room, there's some shift workers in the room, there's some casual workers in the room. There is a difference between jobs that you pick up because it might be good for an ex, extra bit of cash, which you might drop and not do, there are some shifts that you might select that you'll do and then last minute, you had a late night, you'll pull yourself from the roster and say, no, I'm no longer available for that. It would have been nice to have some cash, but I'm just not, not there for it. There is a total difference between that and then the type of job you take up, which you would never stop doing, even if the money stopped coming through. It's the difference between helping somebody put up a fence and then you know, no longer doing that job as a builder and compared to your brother his house was just lost in the floods and you need to go down and help him so that he has a home, so that his children have a dry place to sleep. It's, it's the difference between that. One you would maybe do, the other you would contend for, you would exert yourself for, you would be there no matter the cost. There's some shifts that a nurse might take, might not take. It's a Saturday, I'll see how I feel. Compared to there was a bomb dropped on my city and whether I'm on the roster or not, whether I'm getting paid or not, I will be there to tend the wounds. It's that kind of urgency the necessity. I don't know what job you're in or what passions you have, but what would you, uh, what, what situation would you need to be in where you would be there whether you're paid or not? You would be there extending, expanding, expending effort whether or not other people knew about it. It wasn't in the, in the schedule. You just have to be there to work. It's that idea. Judah's calling every single one of us as Christians not to, to leave this up to the pastors, not to leave this up to the, the formal debaters, the studious theologians, but every one of us has a necessity, has an urgency to be those who contend in whatever measure and to whatever degree God has given us the ability. Whatever it costs us, we contend because we are a part of something so much bigger than us. And that thing which we are a part of, which is bigger than us, is the very next point. That Jude speaks of, of Christianity as a religion. He calls it the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Look at verse 3. Says, I want you to contend. Now, if you have no overarching purpose and mission, no overarching thing to which you belong, your contending just becomes being contentious. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you've got a Glock, everything looks like a target. When you've got a, got a warfare mentality and no mission, everything looks like an enemy. 
You're just contentious. You'll fight over anything and everything from, from politics to theology to, to what color looks prettier on the wall. You don't care. You just need a fight. But when you have an overarching mission, something that, that actually shapes you and, and, and puts you into a certain context, now you have the ability to contend responsibly for something much bigger than yourself. So Jude says, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This, this word in Greek can be translated in two ways. It's the word for faith. Sometimes it means, and often it means, the personal heart level faith or trust in which you have in Jesus Christ to be saved. That the good news of the gospel is that all you must do is not a doing. All you have to accomplish is not something that is not even an accomplishment. You just need to rest, just believe on the promises of Jesus in the gospel, that he died for your sins, that he had lived a perfect life to give you that record, that he rose to triumph over death and sin and Satan, and that he rose again to that throne next to the Father, whereby he gives life to all who trust in him. When you believe that, you're saved. That's your personal faith which brings you into a state of reconciliation, of mercy and grace and love, as Judas said, with the Father. That's one element of faith. The other idea of faith is that it is, it is the faith, as we see in Jude 3. It's not just your personal trust. It's actually the body of doctrine to which we all believe and belong. It's, it's more like the word, the religion, right? We hear phrases like keeping the faith, I belong to the, the Christian faith, the Islamic faith, the Catholic faith. We, we use this language to mean like the religion. And, and, and this, this idea gives us the notion that we are part of something much bigger than us. We, we belong to a creed. We have inherited a creed, a body of doctrine, a belief system that touches every element of human life and the eternal world. It means that the attack on any front is an attack on the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ's truth touches every area of life. It means that we are not able or allowed to start, let's say it this way, God didn't hand down a ball of putty and said, in Christ's name, do what you please. Here's a Bible, it's malleable, it's flexible, it's fun to play with, shove it into whatever shape you want, put it through whatever machine you want, paint it whatever colors you want, plant whatever uh, flags into it you want, make it into whatever, whatever feel you want, do what you want with it, call it Christianity. Let it evolve over time and in each generation find a, a unique manifestation. He didn't tell us that. We've been told that we have received a body of doctrine. It's just so unpopular in today's world. I think there's, there's very few young people who will just get behind a creed unless it's a creed that says, you know, no creeds or something that they don't realize is a creed. It's just a hashtag. Have you seen how, how religious our world is that, that we'll use hashtags instead of creeds? But, but that's the idea. We've, we've inherited a belief system. It's not flexible. You've never, ever been asked your opinion by a faithful preacher about what you think about the Bible. You've been told what it means. Do you know how many, you know how many classes there are? Even I probably shouldn't, shouldn't go down this line, but I'm here. Uh, how many classes there are, even in Reformed church seminaries, that will tell pastors, don't, don't tell people what to believe. Tell them, tell them what they might believe if they were to follow you down the same path. 
The application of a sermon should never be, thus you shall do, thus says God, but rather, aren't we all on a journey together? What might you think of this? Everybody wants to be toothless. And Jude is just so great that he doesn't give us the chance to be toothless. You've never been asked here or in any church that we plan or by any faithful pastor in this pulpit what you think of the Bible unless that question is to invite an opinion that will smash together to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never been asked an opinion by a faithful preacher like Jude. You have been told what Christianity is and you can believe it or reject it. But by God's grace, would you, would you please believe it? Because to reject is not to have an alternative. To reject is to be sent to hell. They are, our, they are our options. It is believe the belief system that has been handed down without chance for interpretation or remanifestation. Believe it or die in your sins. It has always been the same gospel, which is why he goes on to say, it is the faith, the body of doctrine, once for all delivered to the saints. It is something that has been delivered. Now, there's, there's theologians that will try and say, right, not, not the kind of guys I'm going to say jump on their bandwagons, right? Those kind of theologians who will say that, that it's very unlikely Jude was written as early as we think it was in like the 60s or maybe late 50s. Very unlikely. It was probably written in something like the 200s, 300s after Jesus had died because we just don't think that that early on in Christian history, people had this idea of a religion that had certain tenets of belief. This is what they'll tell us. In, in universities, some, some, some Bible colleges, liberal theologians, they'll try and tell us early on it was just a way of loving each other. It was just an example to follow Jesus and walk in the power of his spirit of love. I'm trying to hold back my vomit, if you can't tell. But, but they didn't have this idea of doctrinal, propositional truths to which people believed and taught. Now, not only does the history not bear that out, but Jude, which we take to be inspired rather than questioning it, if we don't assume he's wrong, he actually answers the question for us. It sort of plays against itself. You say, hey, but doesn't Jude say there is a body of doctrine, the faith to which you now belong? And they say, yeah, well, that's why we think it was written late. Okay, or it's proof that this is how Christians thought early on. And in fact, this is, this is not some sort of Western 21st century post-Reformation way of thinking about Christianity. As a body of doctrine to which we believe and belong, for which we contend and which we apply to our life for life transformation. This has been the way Christianity has been thought of and taught right from the apostles, right from Jesus. We can argue right back to Moses. Handed down teachings is how God's people have always seen the revelation of God. This is why he uses this language of delivered. Look, on, look in verse 3. Appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. It was a package deal down from heaven. Yes, there was progress in the revelation, but early on there was an understanding that God will stop revealing new truth through, through scripture writers and we will have a second edition, if you will, to the Old Testament covenant scriptures. And so here we have it. The, the apostolic handed down delivered scriptures. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a section that we have exegeted here together, no doubt in the past, but we will revisit and look at now. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks to much the same idea <coughs> of having a delivered body of doctrine to which we must believe. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we see in verse 3 and 4, verse 3 he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Do you see the way that the earliest Christians pictured the faith, pictured the religion that we belong to? It wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a feeling, a vibe, a group of people. It was a body of doctrine, and that body of doctrine they believed to have been received from the apostles. They didn't choose, they didn't nitpick what books they did and didn't want. They received truth downwards. But even the apostles, like Paul, pictured themselves as having received from the Lord Jesus. He revealed to his apostles what he wanted his church to know. The apostles delivered it to the churches by way of written letters. The church accepted those letters. And since then, it has been God's means to use those letters, apostolic power and teaching, to now apply to the church. So Paul is in agreement with Jude. This faith has been delivered, but he himself had it delivered to him. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, that which I also received. Do you hear the same urgency as Jude? First importance. Die for these truths. Of first importance, of eternal significance. That Christ died for our sins, who pair in the place of our sins. Jesus, as a penal substitutionary atonement, went forwards, became guilty in the place of our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. You have the same idea. There is an unchangeable body of doctrine that we have received for which we must contend and stand for and belong to, and it's never up to an opinion. You're never being asked to edit it. This idea of it being once for all delivered is what we have developed in theology to be called the, the plenary inspiration of the Bible. You can write that one down. To believe in a scripture that is plenary, a, a, a plenary inspiration, plenary meaning finished and final. It was done once, the canon is closed. The book is sealed. It is bound up. This just, this just would have freed so many people through the years through the decades and the centuries of the Christian church, there would be so many people literally still alive having not drunken Kool-Aid or the like, or, or spiritually more vivacious and, and living because they wouldn't have submitted themselves to such horrible spiritual torture and oppression, or, or families still together, or, or people still more blessed. So much suffering could have been helped in church history if only this reality was held fast to that since the faith, the body of doctrine was once for all delivered, this closes the door on every group and person and ism and belief system that says that they have any kind of revelation from God that is authoritative outside the Bible. Notice those careful wordings. That they have any revelation from God that claims to be authoritative outside the Bible. Catholic Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, your everyday cult in your back neighborhood, everything spotting up all over the, the, the Eastern world as well in the name of Christianity, it is demonic and we don't have to worry about it. If we are just held to this, there is a faith once delivered for all. 
We can just ask our, our, uh, the people who might bring us a new idea. Is this the identical truth that Paul has already written about in the Scriptures that I already have bound up in my apostolic writings? If yes, thank you, I don't need your help with it then. If no, I don't want to hear anything about it. Jude says that it is of first importance. Paul says that it is of first importance that we believe in this, which was plenary inspired, that this body of faith exists, handed down for good once for all. We are therefore to contend for it, to urgently propagate it, to share it, to spread it, pressingly to learn it. We must know what it says so that we can defend it and contend for it. We must boldly teach it, spread it to others, extend and expand other people's process in discipleship as much as we have the ability to, zealously to make a defense for it. Calvin used to say, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet I would remain silent. This idea is, is, is older than Calvin. It goes right back. We, we have as Paul discipled and, and, and sent off his young protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, he said, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It's the same idea. There has been one faith revealed from heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. We may either believe it or reject it, but we can never edit it. And those who have believed it must then see themselves go about in their lives the spreading of it, the contending for it, the propagation of the Christian faith so that that little seed, that little mustard seed in the ground can become the largest tree in all of the garden. Never be a civilian who stands by and hopes that others are doing their job. Never be the civilian who will stand back from the front line, really hoping that everybody else felt more motivated than you to go and fight, to go and put an end to the enemies. But rather, realize that until you are involved, the militia is necessarily less strong than what it could be with you in it. Your own, per just think about it selfishly if you want. As, as Paul sort of said in, in Ephesians 5, when he said, husbands, if you love your wives, you love yourself. Love yourself by loving your wife. There's just nothing unbiblical about that reasoning. So let me use it now. Do you want to stay safe as a Christian and away from harm? Engage yourself in Christian warfare. Because the more that you draw back from the front line, the less of the Holy Spirit is protecting and engaging you. The less that the, the body of faith is being protected, the less your church is being defended. You want to stay away from harm's way? Run to the trenches. Shoot with your friends. Stay, stay under the bunker of truth and assail the enemies. Take ground for the kingdom. Never be the civilian who hopes everyone else is doing their job, but rather you, like every member of a body, every body part, engage yourself in the contending for the faith. And he gets to verse four. He says the why now. Why it is so important to contend for the faith that he was, just, he was just built up with urgency to write. He just couldn't put the pen to paper to encourage them in any other way. The Spirit compelled him to tell them to contend. And the reason is in verse 4. Because certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were written about in this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, 
and deny our master, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. As Paul had said in Acts chapter 20, to the shepherds, to the, to, to the pastors, keep a close watch on the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Do not let him have made you an overseer in vain, but keep watch because from your own selves will come wolves coming up, not sparing the flock, but, but mincing them and eating them and fleecing them all over the shop and, cha- and taking people after themselves as a following. As Paul warned, so Jude warns, much of the damage to the Christian religion is done from inside by people who have snuck in unnoticed. Unnoticed they come in, unnoticed they do their damage, unless you have a contending, ready, awake and alert church. He speaks about these people as being ungodly or or literally godless, not meaning atheistic, but meaning in their practice it is as if they believe there is no judgment, there is no controlling uh, a principle or judge over them, they do what they please. Ungodly people who, he says here, long ago were designated for this condemnation, which can precisely also be translated, those who were long ago written about for this condemnation. That, that word uh, graphe can either mean uh, uh, written about in such a way that they're being destined or written about in that it's being foretold. I think that he's speaking of being foretold because what he does from verse 5 onwards is, is refer to ancient scriptures which talk about just these types of people. So where I love the ESV, I I think that we'll go with the NIV on this one. (laughs) These people who were written about long ago in this condemnation, they are ungodly people, and here's their two signs. They're two signs of ungodliness. The two markers of these people that are such a danger to the church that the church must contend is that, number one, they turn the grace of our God into sensuality, and number two, they deny our only master and Lord. They take grace and they make it an excuse for sin and they reject the authority of Jesus Christ in their life. First of all, this perverting the grace of God into sensuality. This word sensuality means to be always living after the pleasures of the senses. You can see the word in there. What you can taste, touch and feel. Really, it often refers to greed, sexual pleasure, gluttony. This idea that if God is so gracious to us, then we don't need to worry about what sins we're committing. Just follow after the feelings, the senses, the passions that you have and chase after them. God won't mind. He was gracious. Whereas the Bible defines God's grace as God's power in our lives to conform us to Christ's image, beginning with forgiveness and regeneration ending all the way in our glorification and resurrection, where that's God's grace in our life, false teachers, these godless people, believe that grace is the freedom to do as you please. They take this blessing of, of, of the gospel liberty that is afforded to every Christian. Okay, You have, a, you have a, a liberty in your conscience so that if the Bible does not condemn something, either explicitly or by reasonable inference, then you are free to do it in as much as you can do it in love and under the, under the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, and other people are called dogs and other harsh words like that, if they try and bind your conscience to obey their conscience, if they want you to not do and smoke and drink and eat whatever they don't want to, where there is no command of Scripture. So we do not stand on each other's conscience. Jesus alone is Lord of the conscience. And yet, 
They take that liberty and turn it into license. It means now not just that I'm free to do what the Bible doesn't condemn, but I'm free to do even what the Bible does condemn because such is the powerful grace of God. It's like trying to convince a kid to take lollies. People feeling the burn of sin, being told by somebody claiming to be an apostle that God actually doesn't mind if you indulge. It's just, it's just the best news ever. You don't have to, it's not like the Galatian heresy where they were making people circumcise themselves. It's a really easy sell. Sin all you want, do as you please, no harm done. Christians use the grace of God. These false anti-Christians abuse the grace of God. Where grace creates our works of mission, grace excuses in their mindset their works of depravity. True grace empowers us to endure. Their grace allows them to lapse. Where true grace equips us to contend, their grace justifies their sin. Where true grace justifies the sinner, their grace justifies the iniquity they are committing. Where true grace regenerates us to a new nature, their grace tolerates them without any change. Degenerate, demonic, ungodly grace is defined by tolerance, affirmation, following your heart, autonomy, and self-esteem. Let's, let's redo those. Degenerate, demonic grace is defined by tolerance, affirmation, following your heart, autonomy, self-esteem, being true to yourself. That's degenerate, ungodly grace. True grace, divine grace, is defined by holiness, transformation, following our Lord, dependence on God, and self-diminishment, not self-esteem. This is the classic heresy of antinomianism. God doesn't care what I do because grace is all around me. Against that, and you can tell how, how both with words and with a lifestyle, you must contend against that. But contend we must. As a church, as individuals, contend against that lie. And secondly, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they deny him as Lord and master. They, 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 they hate the fact that he has this claimed authority. They don't believe that. He, his authority is not against them. You will see in the book of Jude, he's mentioned it here. He will mention it again in verse 6 and again in verse 8 that a key marker, right? Get this, 21st Christians, millennials especially. One of the key markers for Jude of being godless and condemned is that you hate authority structures. You hate authority structures. No one can tell me what to do. I don't have to submit to anybody. There's no such thing as godly government. I'm, I've never been told what to do with a smile on my face. I'll never let my boss have any, any real authority or, or structure in, in how I'm controlled. Authority hating is God hating because he is the ultimate authority who gives authority to structures in life. To Jude, hating authority is so important that he actually defined his first way to define himself was a lover of the authority of Jesus. Second word in the epistle, Jude, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. A mark of Christian maturity is glad submission under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will always show itself in some measure in other allowances of authority in the, in the church, in the family, in your employment, and to the civil magistrates. 
in as much as they're given authority by God's scripture, we submit to them. So these people are saying that, 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 that of course, we can do whatever we want with our flesh, but anybody that tries to make that argument in, a, in any church that has that is had even the most rudimentary teaching in Scripture, we'll have to deal with the secondary question. That's awesome. I'm really keen for that. I'm a teenage guy. I really like your new set of ethics that you just told me I can go and do. But what do I do with all the commandments that my parents made me memorize? What do I do with the Ten Commandments that are up on the wall in our, in our lounge room? What do I do with the things we're learning? Like, do I, what, what happens with them? And, and simply, the answer is that, well, they actually have no authority on you. They actually have no authority, so the teaching goes. Maybe we hear it in our common day like this. That was contextual, and it doesn't actually apply that way now. Well, Paul was against those forms of sexual sins in his culture that he knew of, but he didn't understand the types of sexual uh, uh, manifestations that we might have today. Well, the Bible is, is actually full of errors here and there. This is probably one of those. The Bible is a really good picture of what people in the ancient world thought of God, but it's not the authority over us. It's not inspired by God himself. That's a silly post-Reformation idea. They say all of this, and against all of that, Jude says, contend. Contend under Christ's authority for the reality of Christ's authority. Now, it's just, it's one of those things. It's like if you're, you're put into a ring with the big show. Shout out to all my 2000s WWE fans. If you're put into the ring with him against a small person, whatever we call them these days, a small person, and you're told, tag team, take the victory, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. That's fine. I'm willing to fight that. That's already won. C.S. Lewis used to call it, when you're defending a lion, you don't defend the lion, you unlock the cage. When you're defending the authority of Jesus, which is the authority above every single other authority in the entire universe, you don't have to do much work. You read the scriptures, you live under his authority, God takes care of the rest. But against these arguments, modern day versions, ancient versions, against these lifestyles, modern day versions, ancient versions, which are really all the same in spirit, we must know our defenses. Over and over again, we'll say here at Hope Church, you need to know what you believe. Don't just be a Christian, whatever that means, hope I'll go to heaven. Know what you believe, how to define it, and know why you believe it. Nowhere in Scripture you get the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, the reality of justification by faith alone, the eternal resurrection yet to come bodily, the, the, the reality of Christ's death and bodily resurrection. Where do you get those? Do you know how to defend it? So know what you believe, how to defend it, uh, sorry, rather, know what you believe, why you believe it, and how to defend it. Know how to turn those, those sticks into arrows that you can actually utilize in warfare, or you are the easy pickings for the cults. That is the warning. These people that live, that are still tempting people to live how they want and rejecting the authority of Jesus and bringing about new revelations next to or over the Bible are around every corner, dare I say, on our own front door. You are the easy pickings. Let every time you see one of those churches, pamphlets in the mail, or people that you know there, always remember, lest we contend, we will fill their pews and fill the lines of hell. We must contend 
for their sake, for our sake, for our children's sake, for heaven's sake, for Jesus' sake. We must contend. That is the command of the scripture to every generation. And as we close out, know this. In every bit of the authority of the word of God, this truth is is proclaimed loudly. Jesus died for sinners. Are you a sinner living under exactly what Judas Judas explained? Are you someone realizing right now you're one of those certain persons? You're one of the unnoticed ones. Maybe you even unnoticed it, but you're here, and he's describing you finding every reason you can to excuse your own fleshly lusts, finding every reason you can to excuse yourself from the commands of Scripture, and here's Jude speaking through me directly to you. You're condemned. You are not in Christ. You don't know the true gospel. You are going to an eternal condemnation, except for the fact that Jesus died for sinners like you. There's only sinners like you. There's no sinners that don't, that don't fit into there, rejecting authority and living in the flesh. That's every sinner that has ever been saved. You're not worse than anybody else, and you're not too lost for the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, the call, the invitation, the love of God is open to you. Believe in this Jesus who is our master and Lord. Believe in this Jesus who did die for sinners, and he will transform you in a way that right now sounds like mythology. If you could believe that there is a version of your life free from this sin, joyful in worship, walking out of these habits of your lifestyle, delighting in the Lord's commandments, it sounds like magic to you. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of God's true grace of transformation for which we will contend every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that in this old, ancient book, we, find, we don't find an address to a certain people. We find an address to all Christians. And, and it, just, it is so applicable to us tonight. The ways that we need to be on guard against false versions of Christianity. That we need to be on guard against our own sin and, and our own desires to fall into these, these ruts, these, these traps that are just lining the road to our left and to our right. Father God, do not let us, in order to overcorrect, fall into legalism, which breaks the gospel on the matters of God's grace. Let us not also, Lord, fall to the other side in the, in the areas of licentiousness and sensuality and, and, and liberty to do whatever we please. God, keep us in this straight and narrow. As you have promised last week, we are kept for Jesus. You've promised us in verse 24, you are able to keep us and present us before the throne. We await that day. We, we trust that, and though the path looks uneasy and feels as if we will fall at 100 points, we trust the Lord Jesus who can keep us. And knowing that he is one, and knowing that he is kept, and knowing that he is victorious, we now contend, and we, we, we strive, and we fight. Lord, give us the valor that we need to sprint to the fire, to sprint to the front line, to run to the trenches and do what groundtaking work needs to be done. Give us the wisdom to, to bend our, our schedules in such a way that we can serve Jesus more zealously. Give us the wisdom to know how we can utilize our gifts more so, so that more children, teenagers, adults, lost people can know the love of the Lord Jesus through our own testimony. And Father God, won't you please save tonight saint, uh, uh, sinners who, who need to be transformed, people who thought themselves Christians but are not, people who thought themselves free from condemnation but are not, 
people who thought they could get away with disobeying Jesus but cannot, please give to their hearts this moment faith that delights in and loves and receives the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we honor you. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for Jesus, for it is in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.